Well, this morning as we look to the Word of God, we see uh, two entirely different and contrasting responses of Christ that are very fascinating as uh, we reflect on the Word of God this morning. And you can see these contrasting pictures and contrasting actions of Christ as you see sort of a split-screen development in verses 13 and 14. Because on the one hand, what you have on one side of the screen or the picture is the disciples preventing the fathers who are bringing their children unto Christ for blessing. They are rebuking the fathers. And so Jesus stands in between the disciples and these fathers and he boils over with indignance and anger at the disciples. And then on the other hand, you have this picture of Jesus Christ in verse 16, taking up these little babies into his arms and enfolding them in love and compassion and blessing them and praying for them before the Father. And really, if you think about it, it's really a picture of the vintage Jesus. It's not as if the other stories and actions of Christ are somehow uh, less important than this picture. But when I use that idea of vintage Jesus, it's one of those pictures of Christ that people everywhere find so compelling and gripping about the Messiah. Is here he is, the Son of God incarnate. And uh, at times he has to rebuke even his own people who are obstructing those who would come to Jesus Christ for his compassion. And here is Christ standing up for what society considered as weak and worthless and contemptible, really. And here is Christ standing up for them and reaching out to them and enfolding them into his arms. I want us to think about this morning what lessons we can learn from both the anger and the tender compassion of Christ. And there's a lesson in here, first of all, about the nature of salvation as you look at this incident. Because, as we said, here are the fathers uh, bringing their children to Jesus Christ to be blessed. They're preventing uh, what ought to happen. Jesus, of course, shows his anger and his indignation by rebuking them and commanding the children to come unto him. And then he draws a principle from that. And that's the first thing that I want us to see The principle that Jesus draws uh, from this particular scene of the fathers correctly bringing their children unto him for blessing, uh, Jesus uses it as an illustration of the nature of salvation. And the nature of salvation is that it's by sovereign grace. The nature of salvation is that it's entirely given unto us by the sovereign grace of God. And you see, that message fits very well with the context. And we're going to have to draw on this story that just comes right after uh, this particular episode of the children being brought to Christ for blessing. And that's the story of the rich young ruler. And perhaps you're familiar with that particular story uh, from your Sunday school lessons. Uh, But it's a fascinating picture. Because here you have this rich young ruler, we're told, who's very wealthy, who's a very righteous man, who's a respectable citizen, and he comes fleeing to Jesus Christ. Uh, One of the gripping details of the story is that this man is so uh, energized and excited about Christ that he runs to him. He makes haste to go to Jesus when he finds out that he's in town. And not only does he run to Jesus Christ, but when he gets to him, he gets on his knees and he bows down before him. And he says unto him, a good master, a good teacher. In every way he shows a complete heartfelt respect and adoration 
for Jesus Christ. And what you find in Jesus' response to this man is fascinating. The Word of God tells us in verse 21 that Jesus, looking at him, felt love for him. Now that's a fascinating description because nowhere else in the Gospels do you find Jesus Christ saying this, or the narrators of the the Passion Narratives tell us that Christ looked at others and felt love. But this young ruler poses a question to Jesus Christ. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you see uh, Jesus' response here. He begins to question him about uh, the keeping of the commandments. And of course, the rich young ruler says, all of these I have fulfilled from my youth. And so Jesus says, okay, well, how about this? He says in verse 21, go and sell all that you possess and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And it's right here that a lot of commentators and some sermons veer right off track. Because as people hear those words, uh, they begin to see that there's a principle maybe in here that all of us should follow. Really, an attitude of the heart idea that what Jesus wants us to do is uh, to have sort of an anti-capitalistic mentality, an anti-materialist ideology of life. That The attitude of our hearts is that we're to be completely detached from the things of the world. And if we would just follow that principle, uh, then we'll have favor with Jesus Christ. But you see, that's to veer off from the point of the question. What the rich young ruler says to Jesus Christ is, what must I do? Is there anything that I can do? I've kept all of the commandments from my youth. I I have not murdered. I have not committed adultery. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't bear false witness. I've honored my father and mother. But what else must I do? See, he's ready. And Jesus goes to the heart of the man's problems. And he finds this man's idol, money, material possessions. And he says, this is what you must do. You must give up your idols and worship the one true and living God with your whole heart, with complete and utter devotion. And you'll notice the man's response in verse 22. It says he was saddened and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. You see, what he did was he chose his material possessions and his wealth. He chose to cling to those things as his salvation rather than entirely to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire point that Jesus is making in that story is that salvation is a gift. That's the point that he also wants to make here. Jesus reinforces that here in verse 15 when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter into it at all. This is about salvation. You say, well, how is it about salvation? And the reason why it's about salvation is because the Bible equates entering the kingdom of God with salvation. And Jesus says that the kingdom must be received like a child. And this sometimes leads people to think, well, oh, okay, I can see the condition for entering the kingdom of God. Uh, The condition for entering the kingdom of God and the condition for receiving salvation is that I have to adorn the qualities of a little child. And so as one commentator says, receiving the kingdom as a little child means to accept it with trustful simplicity and 
uh, unassuming humility, to be simple and humble and unquestioning. You see, uh, what he's suggesting is that the way that we receive the kingdom is to become like a little child and be simple and humble. But what is that? That's works. Uh, That's doing something in order to earn the favor of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not Jesus' point at all. And one way we can know that is the nature and the standing of children in Jesus' society. There's a letter that's been recently uncovered from about the time of Jesus Christ. It was uncovered in Alexandria. It is a husband writing to his wife who is expectant with a child, and his words to her were, If it's a male child, let it live. If a female, cast it out. You see, his instructions were that if it's not a son, that she is to kill the child. And it's difficult for for us in our 21st century North American context, which sort of uh, worships children, to to grasp the fact that in the ancient times, uh, children were uh, considered to be a liability. Uh, Children had no no standing in society. They had no rights. The very right to life was not even a concept that they understood. In fact, life was considered to be a gift given by earthly fathers. You see, what Jesus is saying here is not that we're to cultivate qualities that will then help us embrace Christ. What Jesus is saying is that the only way to enter into the kingdom of God is unless the Father in heaven graciously and sovereignly gives life. That's very important to understand because that is the proclamation of the gospel throughout the entire New Testament. The Apostle Paul says in Titus 3.5, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, He saved us and He called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which He has granted us in Christ Jesus in eternity. And then, of course, the verse that we're all so well aware of because we've memorized it, from our mother's knee, and that's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, what Jesus is saying here is that if we're to ever receive the kingdom of God, the only way that we're ever going to receive it is if God sovereignly and graciously gives it to us as a gift. And it's not mixed with qualities of a child, but it's received as a child receives something from a father as a gift. It's not by our effort. It's not by our good character. It's by the mercy of God. It brings us back to our passage and it starts to get at the problem here of the disciples. The problem of the disciples rebuking the fathers as they bring these children to Jesus Christ is they are misrepresenting God. By blocking the way to Jesus Christ, these little babies can come unto Him and receive blessing. What the disciples are essentially saying is that if you want to get in Jesus' good graces, you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you have to earn the right to come into His presence and to receive His blessing. And Jesus is indignant. He's indignant 
that is never used of Christ anywhere in the Gospels. It means he's boiling over with anger. Why? Because they're misrepresenting the truth about God. What the disciples are saying in effect by their actions is that God is not a God of mercy. They're saying that God is a God of strict justice. If you want to have a relationship with God, you better earn it. Jesus is saying that is to misrepresent the truth. The truth is that God is a God of compassion and that He's a God of mercy and that He's a God of grace. And that means then that the gospel is not about, uh, look what I have done to save myself. But it's a complete reversal of that attitude of the heart. Look what God has done for me. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. The gospel of sovereign grace is stamped all over the passage. And then the next thing we see secondly, after Jesus clarifies the nature of the gospel, he proclaims that children of believers are a part of his church. He claims that children of believers are a part of his church. And in order to help us understand that, we have to understand, first of all, uh, who it is that's being brought Now, in your translation, if it's like mine, the New American Standard Version, it says they were bringing children to him. And that's led some people to think, because that word in the Greek is a big stretchy word. It can mean anything from an infant all the way up to a child uh, in its preteen years. And so some have argued that what you have here is uh, perhaps preteen people, uh, young people, children of believers, uh, coming to Jesus Christ at the age of discretion, where they have an age of understanding, sort of. They understand now who Jesus is, and so they come to Him. But if you, uh, if you compare this particular narrative with uh, how Luke records it in Luke chapter 18, there he says that brethos were being brought to Christ. You say, what in the world is brephos? It sounds like Greek to me. And that's the truth. It's Greek for infant. Everywhere you turn in the New Testament where that particular word is used, it clearly means a baby. Listen to this. Luke 141. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb. Luke 2.12, the angel of the Lord instructing the shepherds to go worship Jesus right after he was born, said, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. 1 Peter 2.2 says, like newborn babies. Same word in all of those verses. Like newborn babies. The only time it's not clearly used to refer to an infant is 2 Timothy 3.15, where Paul reminds Timothy that from childhood he's known the sacred writings which were able to make him wise unto salvation. Now, I would argue that in that particular context, Paul is exactly saying what we're arguing here, that from the time you were a little baby in your mother's arms, you were learning the Scriptures... He's underscoring the great benefit and grace that was to Timothy that God had given him. Godly mother and a godly grandmother who spoke to him the words of the truth from the scriptures. And so he never knew a time in his life when he didn't believe in Jesus. Because he was taught that. 
But you see, that's what's going on here. These children are being brought, these babies are being brought to Jesus. And that, that, that signals to us the problem that the disciples had. Because again, they're operating with the mentality of the ancient world, which is that children really have no standing. They're unimportant. They're insignificant people. Here's some basic uh, reflections of contemporary Jewish thought of the day. A child is without understanding and is self-willed. A child acts like a fool. A child is inclined to naughtiness and needs sharp discipline. It is a waste of time for a scholar to spend time with a child. If they didn't sit around thinking about children as sweet and innocent and charming and unspoiled. They thought of children as entirely insignificant people. And that's precisely what is being reflected in their actions. That they're not really worth Christ's time. But Jesus, by rebuking, is saying, let the little children come to me. I will embrace them. We also need to see who it is that is bringing the children. And the answer to that question is that it is the fathers. It is the fathers who are, <clears throat> who are bringing the children to Jesus. You say, where do you find that in the passage, Pastor Sotel? Well, the answer is uh, in verse 13 when it says, The disciples rebuked them. That is the people who are bringing the babies to Christ. You say, well, how does that uh, indicate to us that that's the fathers? And the answer is, uh, because the term in the Greek is masculine in gender, which indicates that it was the men, it was the heads of household. And this is entirely consistent with Scripture. If you think about uh, the covenantal structure of the family going back into the Old Testament, that God had commanded the fathers as the heads of their households to see to it that their children were incorporated into the covenant by circumcision. It was the fathers. But you see, these fathers were seeing something in Jesus Christ. What these fathers were beginning to see about Jesus Christ is that He wasn't some ordinary man who had extraordinary abilities to teach the Word of God. What these fathers were starting to see in Jesus Christ was that He was the Messiah. He was the one who had been promised from of old. He was the one in whom all of their hopes and dreams and salvation expectations were in. You say, well, how do you know that? And the answer is because of the place where Jesus was. And we know as we piece together the gospel accounts that what's going on here in Mark chapter 10 verses 13 to 16 is going on in the very last days of Jesus' life. Not long before this particular episode, Jesus had, had gone to the home of Mary where Lazarus, her brother, had died. And he met with the family after they're dead and they were grieving and Jesus walked out to the tomb and he walked into it and he called forth Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, rise! And you remember that that dead Lazarus who'd been in the tomb for more than three days was quickened unto life. A dead man rose by the power of Christ. Now, The response of the Jews who knew about it, and there were a lot of Jews who knew about this because Mary and Lazarus were a very prominent family who lived next to Jerusalem. The response of the Jews is exactly what you would expect. It says they began to believe in Him. So much so that as the religious leaders found out about this miracle of Jesus Christ of imparting life to a corpse, 
that they gathered together and they said this, and it's John 11.48, it says, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. You see, these people are worried about keeping their jobs. They realize that in Christ there is something unique. They realize that in Christ, here you have the Son of God incarnate, and people are flocking to Him, and they're trusting in Him as Messiah, as the way to salvation. And these hard-hearted, resistant, stubborn, unbelieving religious leaders were standing in the way of that now. And they conspired together to kill Him. And so the Word of God tells us that Jesus took refuge on the other side of the Jordan. Now, if your Bibles are open, just look at verse 1 of Mark chapter 10. It tells you precisely where Jesus was. It says, He went up from there to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. These are the last days of Christ's life. This is the time in Christ's life where the countrysides were alive and abuzz with the knowledge that this Christ, this is the Messiah... And what they are saying is they're transferring their faith in Him. These fathers who have heard of the miracles, the fathers who have heard of the instruction, the fathers who have heard of this rising of Lazarus from the dead, these fathers have put their faith in Him, and they have staked their hopes in Him, and they believe that He is the Savior. Now all of that is necessary background information then to understand Jesus' response now. Verse 14. Remember now, verse 14 is responding to these disciples preventing the children being, to being brought to Him by their believing fathers. When Jesus saw this, He was indignant, and He said to them, Permit the children to come to Me, and do not hinder them. So right there, you would have basis to believe that Jesus welcomes the believers of children into His church. Right there, if He didn't say anything else. Jesus' rebuke tells us that Christ welcomes the believers of his children, uh, the children of believers into his body. But notice his explanation, and it's all hanging upon that word for. Look at it in your Bible. Do not hinder them for. It means Jesus is giving the reason why. Jesus is giving them the reason why these babies are to be allowed into His presence to receive His blessing. And notice the answer. He says, the kingdom of God belongs to them. These little babies, the babies of believing fathers who had trusted in Jesus Christ, who had seen His works, listened to His promises, loved His teachings, seen His miracles. They trusted in Him as Messiah, and now they bring their children to Him. And Jesus says, of such fathers and mothers, their children belong to the kingdom, and the kingdom of God belongs to them. What is the kingdom, people of God? Well, the kingdom is what was promised. The kingdom is what was promised from the very beginning of Scripture. The kingdom was the promise given in Genesis 3.15 that as Adam and Eve fell in the garden, they sinned against God and were kicked out of paradise. God gave them a promise. He said, one of these days, a warrior, if you interpret that literally from the Hebrew, a warrior king will come forth and conquer the devil and win our salvation. And all throughout Scripture, that theme begins to build and build and build until it climaxes in this glorious prophetic promise of Daniel 7, where the prophet prophesies 
verses 13 and 14. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. You see, Jesus is claiming to be that king of prophecy. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. When he says the kingdom belongs to them, he greets them as the king of the kingdom and he extends to them fellowship and he says, these children, the children of believers, belong to the kingdom of God. I belong to them as their king and as their savior and they belong to me as my children. And so Jesus, Jesus says, let them come. And then thirdly, notice Jesus confers his grace. Jesus confers His grace upon these babies. It is a completely fascinating picture that you find in verse 16. It says, He took them into His arms and began blessing them, laying His hands upon them. The picture here is of Jesus Christ and the fathers are bringing these little infants to Him and it's as if He grabs them and He enfolds them in His arms. That's what it says. The word literally means... To put one's arm around as an expression of affection. Can you imagine if that was you? Having uh, one day growing up and hearing about this Jesus Christ and hearing of His miracles and of His love and His compassion and His writings and His works. And your mom and dad tell you, uh, you don't remember it because you were just a little baby. But that Jesus took you up into His arms and He enfolded you in His arms and He conferred grace and blessing upon you from the Father. Amazing. Jesus began blessing them. Jesus enfolded uh, these uh, children, these babies, which society considered to be worthless. But Jesus identifies with them. That's amazing. But you'll find that all throughout the Gospels, uh, Jesus is continually entering into the condition of and identifying Himself with the kind of people that society at large marginalized, thought of as worthless, unlovable. That's part of the joy of the gospel this morning, isn't it? It's part of the joy of the gospel this morning, people of God, is that Jesus Christ identifies with those who are considered contemptible in the eyes of the world. uh, The poor and the weak and the destitute and those who've had their rights trampled on and those people who are oppressed and underprivileged. What the Word of God is telling us is that Jesus identifies. He enters into the condition and He receives them and welcomes them in grace. This is a marvelous message. The Christ of salvation is not a Messiah who says, be sure to clean yourself up first before you come to me. The Christ of salvation is not the Messiah who says, make sure you go through this 12-step program first. Then you'll be ready to receive my grace. Then you'll be worthy of my compassion. No, it's the marvel of the gospel is that Jesus welcomes sinners unto himself. And he gives them salvation. And he does that by grace. But that tells us about our God, doesn't it? 
that tells us about our God. God is not some cosmic watchmaker who sits in the sky and he's sort of uh, set in motion all of the parts and, and uh, the workings of the world. And he sits somewhere in a heavenly cosmic rocking chair, completely indifferent to your life. No, because in his son is an image of the Father. Mercy, grace, compassion, kindness, love. Jesus here takes these children in His arms. And the Word of God says, He blessed them. He laid His hands upon them. And then Matthew's account is that He prayed for them. And as their heavenly mediator, what He was doing was praying before the throne of grace that the Father would pour out His grace upon these babies. And you can believe that the prayers of Christ are answered. Sandin and Laura, I've been talking to a lot of people. I'm going to talk to you and anybody else here who's willing can listen in. When Christ says that babies of believers are welcome into the kingdom of God, He's giving you the right and the promise and the privilege to bring baby Dylan to receive baptism. And when he does that, you might see the hand of the minister sprinkle the water upon his forehead. But what we are to understand from that is that God himself is baptizing. That God himself is saying, Dylan is mine. Dylan is a part of my church. Dylan is a part of my kingdom. And my grace is to him. That's your privilege this morning to come and claim that promise in an act of faith as you present him. And it's our joy to watch. It's our joy to be witnesses. And to see the mercy of God extended to your family. But this comes with a solemn obligation. And the solemn obligation to your family is that you are called to teach this child and pray over him. That your calling is, is to instruct them in this precious faith which is yours. It's your calling to tell a baby Dylan about Jesus. And to tell him that the way to salvation is in Christ. And that his grace is to him. And that he is the only way of salvation. That his word is true. And that he is a part of Christ's church. And your obligation is to pray for him. Daily lifting him up to Christ before the very throne of grace. Pray that God would show mercy to him, that God would enfold him in his love, that God would protect him all of his days. And it's your duty to model the faith before your child every day. That your home is to be a home that is clear to everyone that Christ is the King and the Lord of your house. That's your obligation, which results from you acting in faith in response to Jesus' word of promise, that your children are a part of His church. And God uses that as a means to an end of confirming the promises that are here in this passage. It's imperative that you embrace these and follow them so that what Paul said of Timothy might also be said of Dylan as he grows into maturity. 
Think about this. Think about this. To give this kind of a heritage to your baby. That he would know from childhood. He has known the Holy Scriptures. Which make him wise unto salvation in Jesus Christ. That's your solemn obligation. And I trust by the mercy of the Lord. You will joyfully fulfill that calling as an act of grateful worship. Let's pray.